0: Hello, Bulls fans, and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast on the Blue Wire Sports Podcasting Network. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the show. We are brought to you today by Bet Online. Thank you to them for sponsoring the show, and thank you to you for joining us on this episode of the show, which is bound to be a pretty eventful one for Fred and I, given that the Bulls have just put in place their new general manager, Arturis Karnasovis, and they're going to work as per usual. Already putting in place his GM, he has signed Mark Eversley from the Sixers to be his new general manager. Fred and I will get into that as well as episodes three and four of The Last Dance. So let's get it straight into it and let's bring in the Scotty Pippen to my Michael Jordan. Here is Fred Pfeiffer. Fred, how are you, sir?
1: Oh, well, I'm living the dream, Mark. Uh, Scotty Pippen to Michael Jordan. I think it's important that we first start out with the, uh, the very advanced scientific test that NBC Sports <laughs> Chicago offered where... We did a personality test to find out what bowl you were most like. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, it, I found it to be expected. I ended up being Michael Jordan. You were Jerry Krauss. What say you? <laughs> <laughs> I knew to isn't, isn't it perfect considering how you were defending Krauss all week? Uh.
0: <laughs> I knew so you were—you weren't going to let me let that slide on this episode of the show. <laughs> I mean, I was stupid for putting that online, but I just wanted to prove my integrity. Unlike most people, it was probably doing the doing that test a million times over tr- until they put in the correct answers until the the, the a- a- algorithm spat spat out Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen or someone of greater character than Jerry Krause. But I did it one go. <laughs> that was the answer I got. Because I'm a man of integrity, I shared my results. With the public, prob- with the public, a unfortunately, it, it was uh, Jerry Kraus, which I'm blaming on NBC Sports. Um, uh, not my answers.
1: Well, I, I will admit you are a good man. You are the Jerry Krauss of Bulls podcasters. Uh, I was <laughs> <laughs> the funniest part about this. I literally know probably a hundred people who took that test. You're the only guy I know who got Jerry Kraus. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, man Oh, It's so classic So where where are we man? Where where are we talking about? That's just funny I mean we'll come back
0: And talk about more About Jerry Krause Michael Jordan And and the last dance On uh, the second half Of this show But I thought It made sense To start with The recent news Of uh, the Bulls Hiring uh, Mark Eversley Of the Sixers He's currently The Senior Vice President Of Player Personnel With the Philadelphia 76ers He has been hired By Arturis Karnasovas To be his general manager So that news dropped Maybe a couple hours after the, the 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 airing of episodes three and four of the Last Dance, I wasn't expecting that to come after that. But the Bulls and kind show was doing work. Well, obviously watched uh, episodes three and four and then decided to make the signing of Mark Eversley a little bit later on. Uh, uh, what are your initial thoughts about this? Uh, I'm assuming you're asleep when this news broke, given it probably came through it around midnight Chicago time. But what are your initial thoughts on Mark Eversley becoming the Bulls' new general manager?
1: Well, he was off my radar. I had no idea who he was. Uh, I can only tell you what I felt about the 76ers' moves over the past few years, and they're not great. I got to tell you, Mark, I'm not really impressed with uh, the moves. Like, I'd like to know what Gar Pack's move was worse than moving up from three to draft Markel Fultz at number one overall. Like, what, what compares to that, you know? That said, who knows uh, whose decision was that. He was hired by Brian Colangelo. You know, who knows how much of of the decisions that Brian Colangelo made that were good were part of, you know, Mark's decisions. So, you know, it's really hard to tell. I'm going to give him – all I can tell you is I'm going to be open, uh, keep an open mind about how he does from this point forward for the beloved Bull, and I'm looking forward that he's joining the organization. Big picture, we just needed a new direction. We needed a new – Uh, you know, new thought process coming in here. And I think big picture also, AK is going to make most of the decisions that really matter. And hopefully Mark will, you know, help him uh, achieve greatness.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. So my initial thoughts when it came through, I mean, Eversley was one of the names that was linked to the general manager position along with the likes of Michael Finley. I think Mark Hughes from the Clippers and maybe Matt Lloyd was the other one from the Magic who had previous ties to the Bulls or was previously a Bulls employee at one point. So they were the names that were rumored to be the ones that were going to be linked to that general manager, general manager position. To be fair, I didn't know much about most of those those guys in terms of the moves that those People have made by themselves and that is because most of these guys have probably been more assistant type GMs in the past where to your point it's always kind of hard to ascertain what move was theirs versus what move was the ultimate decision maker but in Philadelphia he was you know the senior vice president of player personnel working under Brian Colangelo and I to your point I haven't been thrilled with what the Sixers have done from a a management perspective over the last 18 to 24 months I think they're the way they're sort of been managing that team and that and the way they've built that team has been pretty much a joke over the last sort of 12 months at least I think we saw that sort of play out on the basketball court this season but again I'm prepared to give Eversley a pass on that given that their ownership is heavily involved given Elton Brand is, is the, the rookie GM he's obviously making decisions but Brett Brown is also involved so the, the it seems like that's an environment where there's too many chefs. So I don't know how much of that, of the poor decisions made by the Sixers is to be blamed purely on Eversley. But it is, I guess, a concern of sorts. The fact that he he's part of the uh, Brian Colangelo tree of uh, executives is somewhat of a concern as well. But again, to your point, he's not going to be the lead decision-maker here in Chicago. That is still going to be Arturis Karnaschovas. And I'm prepared to put some faith in in Eversley based on Karnaschovas you know, picking him out to be the Bulls G- GM, And uh, look, we ultimately, we don't really know much about Eversley or anyone else that was sort of going through this process. We'll learn more of that about them as we go forward here, but uh, I'm trusting AK on this one.
1: Yeah. Ty Bull was a nice draft pick for them this year. I think where, where he was picked at, you know, I like that yeah. player, but you know, Al Horford signing in retrospect looks like a massive mistake. Tobias mm-hmm. Harris looks like a huge, horrific mistake. I mean, yep. that, those are those are clear mistakes that this organization made, letting Jimmy Butler go probably, and choosing mm-hmm. to spend money on Harris over Butler. Uh, in yep. retrospect, was a massively uh, you know poor decision. So, you know, who knows how how uh, what what kind of influence he had in those decisions? Let's hope for our sake that it was uh you know had a lot more to do with Elton. But you know, overall, the organization's been successful, you know, since he's been there. Overall, you know, I think. Uh, you know they haven't really got to an Easter Conference final, but let's just hope that everything works out. And and you know I, I was I, I will admit though I was disappointed Finley didn't get the job with Chicago ties. I thought he would have been a perfect guy, um, but you know they went in a different direction, so we'll see how it works out.
0: Yeah, well, I mean the Sixers are set up pretty well thanks to uh, your mate Sam Hinky. so I think that <laughs> oh, certainly helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> here, here but uh, yeah, look, I, I kind of felt the same way that for no real reason. I I wanted Finley involved because he is, has those Chicago ties. But again, I, I don't really know much about Michael Finley, the executive. Same Similarly with uh, Mark Eversley, the executive. I don't know a ton, but for whatever reason, I was drawn to Michael Finley, um, most likely given the, to those, those Chicago ties. So yeah, I, I kind of felt the same. I wasn't disappointed when the news came through. It was, it was a little bit taken aback because I wasn't expecting it as such. But well, I mean, ultimately we'll see. How it all plays out. It'll be interesting to hear from him. He's never been a general manager before. This is essentially a promotion from him. I'm not sure when the Bulls are going to do a a uh, a live press type a press conference, an introduction press press conference with Mark Eversley. I'm assuming they do will do one, but who who knows when that'll happen. If they if it does happen, obviously it will be happening over Zoom, but who who the hell knows? But uh yeah. Noteworthy piece of news as Kharashovas sort of builds out his his uh his front office here. He's got his general manager in place. He's obviously hired his assistant general manager in JJ Polk. He's brought over Pat Connolly to be a vice president of player personnel here with with, with the Chicago Bulls. He followed Kharashovas over from Denver. So slowly but surely, the front office is taking shape. He still needs to make his decisions on those that still remain with the organization. And I'm thinking about Brian Hagan. I'm thinking about. Uh, jim Paxson, of johnny boy's brother uh, and steve wyman as well head ahead of, of the analytics team as well so there's still some moves that are probably going to happen from a front office perspective but slowly but surely kind of show his front office is starting to be filled out i guess the next decision fred will be what he does with his coaching staff and i guess we'll only know once we find out for sure that the nba season is officially done but i guess there's there's some news about with certain states in the u.s and you're probably more uh more familiar with this than I would be But some some states are reopening As of May 1 If I'm led to believe that is correct And to that point there may, there may be certain states That may be Where there are NBA teams That will enable those sort of teams To get back and practice And you know do those sorts of things That ultimately will be up to the team To see what happens If they allow that to happen Obviously a different it's a different situation To Chicago and Illinois But who knows When the NBA season Will be officially uh, officially cancelled, if it is at all. But I guess that's what Kharashovs is waiting on to make a decision on his coaching stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some been there's been some news in the NBA. I haven't had a chance to finish listening to the last ringer with uh, Bill Simmons, but it sounds like there is some movement towards finishing the season. At you know, I'm guessing it would be at some location, either in Florida or Las Vegas, a central location where. You know, similarly, similarly, what they're doing in China in some of these areas where there's massive projects being done, there's a zone, a quarantine zone where, you know, I guess you could envision family, uh, family of the players could come in and, and finish out the season, playing all the way through to the finals. That idea kind of excites me, you know, just just for the fact that I think it would be incredible if they did build a facility or a court specifically designed for, uh, you know, for for television for even 3d for you know for for all the really cool devices that we currently have i think that'd be really neat if they did that but i'm just starving for any type of real sports and i I do think that uh you know hopefully if we can somehow get past or figure out what what you know advanced testing would help us decide that we can do something like that i think it would be really helpful for the psyche of the country
0: yeah i think it's a fair point assuming obviously they can do it safely uh, Georgia is one of those states That is reopening pretty soon I'm sure there's others around That I'm um, clearly missing have Not being based in the US But there are a few states That are reopening soon Obviously some of those states Contain some NBA teams So It'll be interesting to see if that provides any competitive advantages at all in terms of some states opening earlier than others, having that ability to get their teams together or at least allowing their players to get into training facilities a little bit earlier than maybe some other states will. Um, so I, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I'm not. I, look, I don't believe there's going to be much NBA if there is going to be any NBA at all. I don't think it'll affect our Chicago Bulls, but what it may. In terms of the Bulls coming back this season, we may get some playoffs or something like that, but ultimately what it does mean if the end regular season is over, then Karnaschovas gets some sort of – well, not just Karnaschovas, but the rest of the league, they get some sort of notice as to what they what they need to be thinking going forward, whether they should be you know fully planning for the draft, whether they should be scouting, pro scouting, given that the season potentially is still going. But uh, more more importantly for us Bulls fans is understanding if the season is truly over, then there may not be a need to uh, keep old Jim Boiling around, which is hopefully
1: the next big news piece of news that we get through in time. But we we shall see. Just really quick, I did want to say, for what I heard, I heard that there is talk about going to seventy games. So every team would finish at 70, and that would be the final standings, which would require all the teams to go back and to play up to 70 games. The Bulls have played, I believe, uh, was it 65 games, so they would have technically have five more games. Teams like the Lakers have only played 63. I think teams like Dallas have almost played 67 or 69. So it would kind of vary, but I think that's the initial talk right now is that they're going to try to get 70 games in. So... With that in mind, I think it would be kind of cool to see the Bulls for five more games. You know, hopefully by now completely, hopefully, hopefully, Dunn will be be able to finish the season for five games, and hopefully most of the guys on the team are going to be healthy and ready to go. I think it would be a good thing for us to at least catch like five games and see if Kobe's still on and and, and Zach and Zach, you know, can kind of put put some minutes together to at least give AK like one last look before he makes some off season decisions.
0: Am I a bad fan for not? Caring if the balls come back or not, and particularly if it's only like for a five game stretch to finish the season. Like, is there anything to be learned over a five game stretch from the players who've had so much time off? And anything, you know, to be learned that we don't already know about this team? And uh, to be honest with you, I just haven't missed Bulls basketball particularly as we go in going through the Last Dance and being reliving the the '90s dynasty. Like I, I, I just have no interest in watching the current group of Bulls <laughs> at the moment, particularly if Jim Boylan is still coaching the team. So, am I a bad a bad fan for feeling that way?
1: I would say yes. I, I would still like to see the last five. <laughs> Yeah, I'd still like to get together and see what they can do. You know, one interesting point I did want to make to me the most accurate uh, kind of indicator of a team's talent is point differential. And out of all the teams in the East, the Bulls have by far the the teams in the playoff uh, not in the playoffs have the lowest differential. So they're a minus three point one, which means they've been not scored on an average of three point one points. To give you an idea, the Hornets are minus six point seven. And they're ahead of the Bulls. Uh, so that I think that's a good sign. And the two worst teams in the conference, the Hawks and Cavs, are minus 7.9. I think the Bulls are a little bit closer than we're led to believe.
0: Yeah, they're clearly underachieving, and they're, they might be a good ninth seed. That's what you're telling me, right?
1: <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Unfortunately, all the teams
0: qualify for the playoffs. But um, <laughs> maybe next season, Fred. Maybe next season, whenever a new season is. But um, yeah. Interesting news that Wedge dropped yesterday, last night, the Bulls have their GM in place. We'll see what happens thereafter going forward, but um, hopefully hopefully not too much longer before we, we get the inevitable news. I say inevitable, I'm trying to uh, will it into existence that Jim Boylan is gone, but uh, we shall see. But Fred, I want to talk about the last dance now. That's that's the real reason us Bulls fans are pretty amped at the moment. I want I want to get into episodes three and four, but before we do that, let's tell the listeners about this week's sponsor. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to Poco and Blackjack, they are bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? Then no problem. Bet Online has live, daily Madden NFL 20 simulations that you can bet on. You can also still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even Nathan's hot dog eating contest. All of that is open 24 hours a day, and all of it is online. Go to betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. All right, back to the podcast now. Let's get into episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Frederick, what did you make of it? Episodes were pretty much centered around the bad boys, Dennis Rodman, even some Phil Jackson in there. And of course, how that all affected the worlds of Michael and Scotty. How did you feel about episodes three, four in in, in its unison, but more bringing it more more together as a collective in, you know, in, in how it sort of fit with episodes one and two?
1: Uh, I thought all the parts discussing Doug Collins and the Bad Boy Pistons and basically the Bulls from 1986 to 1990 was absolutely fantastic. Probably for me, the the best, most enjoyable watch of the entire series. Uh, I didn't. I, did, I the Rodman stuff was interesting, but I knew all a lot of that already. Already, I think it is kind of interesting that it kind of juxtaposed, you know, Rodman with the Bulls and some of the amazing stuff about him deciding just to go for a vacation in Vegas during the season and him not actually <laughs> returning. That was all hilarious stuff, but I kind of all knew that. Yeah, yeah. The revelations yeah. that were, meant the most to me was, number one, I thought it was really interesting how Doug Collins – you know, I always kind of felt that the reason Doug Collins was fired because he went around Jerry Krause directly to Jerry Reinsdorf, who he always had a good relationship with, to to uh, to basically advocate the drafting of Horace Grant. It wasn't just him, but his entire staff wanted Horace. Jerry Krause wanted Joe Wolf, uh, and and you know he took a big risk by doing that, going around Jerry Krause. And I think Jerry Krause won in my head, that's the reason he was unjustly fired. I don't think anybody can make a good case that it was justified. In retrospect, sure, it looks great, but at the time, it was appalling. And then it, it really hit me, in this episode, I thought, I thought they did a great job, which I did not recall, it was Doug Collins' efforts to minimize Tech's winner. Several years ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Roland Lazenby and uh, for the Chicago Bullseye. Unfortunately, it's never aired publicly. I still need to do a ton of work on it since the recording was so p- horrible and the, and the connection was bad on his end. His end, but one of the points he made was about Jerry Krause's love for Tex Winter and the triangle offense. And he said he also said that Jerry the most hurt he ever was in his job as general manager was when Tex Winter left for the Los Angeles Lakers, in, I think the 2000 season to go the, to reunite with Phil. It really portrayed. I thought uh, Tex Winter uh, and Phil kind of saddling up to Jerry Krause and u- utilizing his love for the triangle and for and for Tex Winter's um, f- basketball philosophy. Basketball philosophy. I think that kind of it kind of showed that Doug. That's why Doug left, and that's why Doug was fired, and that he didn't believe in the triangle. He believed, as I do, that you need to take what your talents are, which, which, which how your team is structured, and, and build an offense around your talent. Um, whereas a triangle is a system, uh, and you know, you don't adapt the talent to the system. You adapt the system to the talent is that that's what the triangle is. I believe in adapting the system to the talent. Um, the triangle is adapting the talent to the system. So it's just a philosophical basketball difference. And that led to his firing. What surprised you?
0: yeah i thought that was probably the biggest one and that was interesting to me because i if i feel like if doug collins was more receptive to tex winter then maybe we never get phil jackson maybe doug collins keeps coaching and maybe Doug Collins is the guy that has three, four, five, six championships, whatever it might be, in, a, in an alternate reality. But he was obviously uh, very steadfast in his decision not to embrace the triangle, not to embrace Tex Winter at all. And, and they had that the scenes there where Tex was sort of coaching away from the team. He was, you know, during the games, he wasn't sitting on the bench during practice. He was way away, taking notes, nowhere near Collins. So, That was an interesting scenario. Clearly, they made the right decision in uh, bringing in Phil Jackson and keeping Tex Winter around. So we can mock Jerry Krause as much as we like, but he clearly got that decision right. But yeah, I was wondering because. Well, how do
1: you know? Is is it possible Doug Collins could have won eight titles in a row? I mean, I I I assume It's
0: impossible, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Okay. I sat with Horace Grant and asked him this very question. I go, do you think the Bulls would have won titles with Doug Collins? He said unequivocally, yes. So Horace is telling, "Yes, we would have won with Doug." You're telling me, "No, we would have won. We would not have won with Doug." Who am I going to believe?
0: Clearly, me. Obviously.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: exactly. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that was that was very key in, in that whole episode as well. The fact that they part of uh, bringing in Phil and part of bringing in Tex Winter and the and the triangle was maybe getting away and decreasing that workload on Michael Jordan and in in, in part elevating his his teammates, which in turn made Scotty Pippen the player he was, Horace the player he was. Obviously, there was going to be a natural uh, progression for those players anyway, given that they were young at that point. But I think that fostered their growth, the fact that they were unable to do more in the triangle than maybe they would have been, maybe would have been the case in an ISO heavy Doug Collins offense that focused entirely around Michael Jordan. So... I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting ph- philosophical question. We can go back and forward on it. I I tend to agree with the way it all transpired. I thought it was the ra- the right decision. And I was actually thinking about this when I was watching this because I know you're a big 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 Doug Collins fan. But to me, it's 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 interesting that you are because he is a bit of a psychopath on the sidelines, which they clearly uh, identified or sort of highlighted through the show. The fact that he's so intense on the sideline, he. You know, in a way, he reminds me of uh, a Tom Thibodeau type in that sense, but <laughs> you detest yeah. Tibbs, but love Doug Collins. I found that, that, that dichotomy very interesting.
1: Uh, that's very interesting you called me out for that, I guess. Well, I would have pra- – if if uh, if uh, Doug Collins, you know, had uh, averaged uh, 43 minutes for Noah over the course of a December 2012 stretch, I probably would have felt as equally angry about Doug. No, but there's no denying this. Like this is as somebody who lived through it, and you have no concept of this or anybody who's younger. But the Bulls were, again, you know, kind of a, a loser mentality. They won 30 games in Michael's second year after the injury, and although he did great things – you know, in the playoffs, there was still that loser attitude. And I just felt like the whole, it was like a a seismic shift in, and from being losers to, you know, winning, beating Cleveland and actually starting to scare the Pistons. And I thought Doug Collins had a ton to do with that. I thought he was a fantastic coach everywhere. He went, the team got considerably better. And I thought his firing was completely unjustified. I was going back and forth with some guy on Twitter and he was like, the bulls plateaued under Collins. I'm like, What evidence is there of that? Doug Collins lost to Detroit four games to one. The next season, they went to the Eastern Conference Finals and lost four games to two. He was then fired. Phil Jackson took over and lost in the Eastern Conference Finals four games to three. Call me crazy. If you do the math, it looks like they were on the same linear path as they were under Doug as under Phil. Like, it's a, such a dumb argument. Like, I don't believe that the Bulls would have suddenly lost, uh, you know, and I, who knows, maybe they would have won game seven. And, and, and the offense was structured completely around – uh, Michael Jordan, instead of running the and triangle with Scotty shooting one of 10, B.J. Armstrong one of, one, <laughs> one of eight, and Horace Grant shooting three of 17. I'm just telling you this. There's one thing that's a fact, and people – this is – I thought there were a couple misleading things about the documentary. Number one, the triangle was run in the first quarter. It was never run in the fourth quarter when games, you know, really the big winning and losing of these games mattered. You think they went to the freaking triangle in the last shot against, against Utah, game six that Michael, I didn't see any triangle being run there. It was every game that mattered in the fourth quarter, it was get the ball to Michael and everybody get the F out of the way, as Doug so eloquently put it, and that's the way it should have been. They ran the triangle in the first quarter and it gave confidence to other players. I understand why they did it. But in, again, in games that mattered in the fourth quarter, down the stretch, let's watch the videotape, point out where they're running the stinking triangle. But you can what make thing. that
0: argument with literally every offensive system at one, at some point, assuming you have that talent available, that it's always going to come back to some half-court isolation. And why would it not when you have Michael Jordan, particularly in those possessions? But the point is obviously the preceding 47 minutes or whatever it might be obviously going Michael Isos for most of the game versus uh you know containing that for the last five minutes or whatever it might be that's clearly the difference and that's where Doug Collins clearly got it wrong and that's why he uh, justifiably was fired in my opinion but I mean Collins was good I'm not, I'm not saying he wasn't a good coach but to me he was a, he was a very similar to a, a Scott Skiles in the sense that he's someone that you can bring in for a two three four year period but it's eventually at some point he's probably going to get burnt out I I mean you look at his coaching career at every stop he had he never really he never lasted more than three seasons at every job and and that's probably because he was so intense and just so steadfast in his ways that he wasn't willing to adapt and uh, I think that's pretty clear for Doug Collins but to me I was thinking watching that back is maybe if he was more willing to accept Tex Winter and Phil Jackson and Collins sort of alluded to it that by his second season he felt that uh, Phil Jackson could run the team, and the way I interpreted it, because Collins, Collins was being specifically cagey about it and didn't want to necessarily go into the details of the senses that he was feeling as to why Phil Jackson could run the team by Collins's second year, it, it did feel like it did feel like, based on the way the documentary was sort of positioning it, that Phil was being groomed as Doug Collins' successor, while Doug was still on the job, which may or may not be true. I don't know if that was the case but that was what was inferred by by the documentary.
1: No there, we'll never know, you know, but there's no denying the results uh, of Phil Jackson uh taking over were were splendid and and I think in retrospect it's probably likely that Doug could not have replicated what Phil was able to do. So um, I don't think that diminishes Doug Collins as a coach. I think he's an excellent coach, and I think if he was their choice in 2008, as, as as John Paxson wanted, instead of Vinny Del Negro, the Bulls would have been in a much better position. There's one other thing, though, about the show last night I really think was kind of undersold, and that was the ramifications of that Eastern Conference loss on June 3rd, 1990, the quote-unquote migraine game for Scottie Pippen um, Scottie Pippen was terrible in that game. He told everyone that he had a migraine. Um, uh, unfortunately didn't seem most of the people I know that had migraines, they're usually chronic conditions that happen often, so it was really unfortunate that the only migraine he seemed to have in his career happened to coincide with the biggest game of his life up until that point, but he was one of ten in that game and really didn't show up. I sense Michael in that cut had some doubts um about whether or not, you know. There was really a migraine, or maybe it was just the moment was too big for him, and that led to a headache. I'm not denying that he had a headache, but he played 42 minutes, was one of ten, and the the surrounding cast failed Michael Jordan in that game. There's no denying it. B.J. Armstrong was one of eight. Horace Grant was three of seventeen, and at that point, in Chicago history, I maintain, it was the greatest or biggest loss in the history of Chicago sports up to that point. The only one that compares to it is the Bartman game of 2003 that the Cubs lost in 2003 uh, game six against the Florida Marlins. What say you?
0: <laughs> I, I knew you were going to bring this up and I in part wanted to definitely talk to you about this because to me, I understand the uh, the knock that Pippen received in terms of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the backlash that he received, I guess let's put it that way. But to me, the way he was sort of explaining the injury, if we want to call it that, or his ailments, it, it was conducive of what, of what you would expect from a concussion. The fact that he was blacking out and couldn't necessarily see, or uh, and just basically couldn't, yeah, couldn't see, couldn't, couldn't necessarily go out there and play as such. To me, I think it sort of undersells it to say he had a headache and that was the result, the reason why he was one of ten in forty-two minutes. Considering he was in the lead up to the into game seven, he was pretty good. For the majority of that 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 series against the Pistons, so to me, uh, I I I'm sensing that you may be believing that maybe Scotty had a bit of a, a choking incident in Game Seven. Are you trying to say that without necessarily questioning Scotty's greatness? I,
1: say, I think Scotty's one of the greatest defensive players of all time. I do feel he he sometimes struggled, especially at that point in his career, in rising to the occasion. <laughs> and there's no arguing that he played 42 minutes with this horrible condition and as bad as it was if you go back i think context is everything if you go back and look at it he was one year away from a contract that was up for you know for up for negotiation he was there was a very big game up to that point and he failed miserably migraine or not he he failed there's no arguing that and michael jordan yeah, my, michael fell. jordan had 15 field goals i think the rest of the team combined had 17 like it was a For a team uh, uh, like the Detroit Pistons who, you know, people, what's the most hated team in our memory, Mark, as Bulls fans? Probably the Heat, would you say? Probably. The Heat, yeah. It was was the hatred I had for the Detroit Pistons was times 20. What I had for the Heat, I respect the Heat. I I disliked them, but I respect them. I didn't respect the Pistons. Pistons had two fantastic offensive players in Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars. Mark Aguirre probably less so at that point of his career, and they had nothing but bums that just were limited physical uh disgraces of humans like Bill Lamber out there <laughs> trying to uh tr- trying to play bully far superior athletes and players into submission to win games. It was disgusting and uh, and i I get so sick of his attitude from the from the Pistons, like you know, uh, the NBA, you know they didn't li- they didn't want us to win. Well, no, nobody wanted you to win because you weren't that stinking good. Outside of those two players, you won because of an in- intimidation and in bullying other people. It doesn't take a lot of skill for one a, a great player. You saw it in the clip there. You saw Dominique Wilkins take to the air. They knocked him down. Doc Wilk, uh, Doc. Uh, who else was in 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 those clips? Yeah, Doc, Doc Rivers, Rivers went down, down, down in one, and you saw what they yeah. did to Scotty Pippen. What Rodman did to Scottie Pippen. I mean, have you ever seen a cheap shot like that? What was what, what was your impression viewing those? If you haven't seen those before, and how could you possibly say, "Oh, that was a great team"?
0: I, I want to say this first. I I, I don't want those singular moments from the Pistons to undersell that they were a good team because they clearly were a good team. They were a great defensive team as well. I mean, they had Rodman, they had a whole bunch of other guys that were good defenders on that team. They were clearly t- clearly talented and what good enough to be one of the better NBA teams in the NBA. But like you, I absolutely detest the Pistons. I had some very disparaging comments. I, I made them about Bill Lambier as I was watching that, watching episodes three yesterday because I just hated his freaking face. Just yeah. looking at that dumbass and the way he would just go through and just clobber guys. It was one play. Yeah, he clobbered Larry Bird. Absolutely clobbered him. And, and Bird reacted, and and he, and he was justifiably uh, right to react the way he did to Bill Laimbeer. Oh, man, I hated that guy more than most. Uh, he may be my most hated player of all time. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I mean, uh, if I think about all the other teams that the Bulls have come come across. And you know, I know a lot of Bulls fans dislike and hate LeBron James, but. You think about what the way LeBron carries himself versus the way the Pistons and guys like Bill Lane Beer carry themselves. It's not even a competition. So I, I can't stand the Pistons. And I was, I was, that was probably the most illuminating thing as well, apart from the Doug Collins stuff, was they went into detail about how to guard Jordan and the Jordan rules and all that sort of stuff. And I was just watching it and just had this visceral feeling of wanting to just. Clobber Bill Lambier in the face with a two by four. That that was my overwhelming feeling watching the episodes three and four. Yeah,
1: he was such a an entitled piece of crap. His father was like a CEO of a company. <laughs> Comes from the lap of luxury, and he's such a limited piece of dung. And you know, like that's he, he basically survived in the league with a good jump shot and fear. He he intimidated yeah. other players by. There was always a thought that could be achieved, and Rick Mahorn was the same way. There's a great clip. That uh, I'm surprised they didn't show where Jordan was basically thrown out of the air by, I think it was Rick Mahorn. Oakley jumps in and and starts taking him on and Doug Collins got thrown on a scorer's table. Did you ever see that clip, Mark? It's a must watch. I feel like
0: they had that one in episode one and two when they were showing the bit about Charles o- Oakley. Uh, I don't know if they cut it during the, the bad boy scenes in episodes three and four, but I feel like there was a scene in episodes one and two when they were talking about trading Oakley for Bill Cripe, right? Where they were talking about Oakley being Jordan's enforcer and how he was always stepping in for him. And I, I, I maybe I'm wrong, but I remember seeing where Oakley was going up a, a Detroit guy. And that may have been the play you're referencing against Mahomes. Yeah, homie. it was
1: just- the team was just so, to me, uh, inferior skill-wise and athletic, a- athletically than the Bulls, but they just didn't have outside of Jordan. None, the, everyone was just so filled with fear out, outside of Jordan and Paxson that they just couldn't get over him. And you know, I, another thing I forgot is Paxson missed that Game Seven, uh, the migraine game. I was unaware of that. And you know, Craig Hodges had a horrible game, three of thirteen. I loved Craig Hodges, but he was terrible in that game. And that's the other thing. But that game was so disheartening and disappointing. I think that was – they scored 74 points. I think that was like a – almost yep. like a record. It was four points higher than the lowest in playoff history. It was such a thorough, demoralizing beatdown. To go from that one year later to sweep them, it's just – it's hard to describe. But, um, yeah, it was just a really good thing reliving that, and I'm glad my son got to see it.
0: Well, the Bulls shot, shot 31% in that game, game seven. They made 28 field goals. Michael had 13 of them. So everyone focuses on Scottie being bad and, and he rightfully was pretty damn terrible. So but so was Horace Grant from an offensive standpoint. You mentioned Craig Hodges. He was three of 13. Uh, no John Paxson in that game. The bench really didn't give the Bulls much of anything. Not that they had a strong bench outside of probably BJ Armstrong at that point. So yeah, the, 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 the team didn't show up. The Pistons got their... They they got their their come up until a year later, but uh it was the Pistons time at that time. The Bulls weren't ready clearly from a maturity and a physical standpoint. And, and I love the fact that they had that uh that montage of the Bulls basically just getting in the gym and just working hard and just essentially throwing on the pounds in the gym just to go out there and beat the shit out of the Detroit know, Pistons. It? That made me happy. And <laughs> yeah. um once they finally did, I was glad to see the back end of uh of Bill Lane beer, Isaiah Thomas and the whole handshake thing got brought up again and Oh, yeah, just everything about that era of, of Pistons basketball, the bad boys, and John Sally just coming on and suggesting that the, they broke up the party or the NBA's plan about Michael Jordan being the eventual successor, and no one wanted the Pistons there and winning championships. And like you said, no one wanted them there because they were, they were a team of mugs who just played like absolute fools. So well, what, I hated the Pistons. I, I hated one thing the I Pistons. wanted to note
1: about that walking off scene. And this is of utmost importance. My uh, good friend Tim Gallagher, basketball historian and uh, avid uh, uh, follower of that uh, that period of basketball in particular, uh, Quote: this is an actual quote from a text he sent to me. One thing that's not being said or being said enough is that the Celtics walked off the floor in Detroit, on the road in hostile territory, where the Pistons' shameful walk off it was versus the Bulls was on the Pistons' home court. And I think his implication was at that time there were still people who would run out to the court after they win a game like that. And it made it far less acceptable where it was done. When they walked off on their home court, it was just – and they showed it. They showed the clips of Michael shaking hands after losing. I, I really thought yeah. that was really well done. And, and Michael, I again, this is somehow – I didn't think it was possible to love Michael even more after episodes one and two. But I, I love him more now after three and four.
0: Yeah, and, and look, I, I completely agree on that. And this is a ridiculous reason why, but for whatever reason, in episodes three and four, Jordan was just swearing off this. He was just going off swearing every second <laughs> sentence was that, you know, profoundly uh, um sentences. And for whatever reason, I was gravitating more to Jordan because of that, for whatever reason, and he would recall... Whatever memory it was, and he would just drop a couple f bombs here and there. And every time he did, I just fell more in love with Michael Jordan for <laughs> the most ridiculous of reasons. But <laughs> um, yeah, he, he comes away looking even better. I don't know where where he got this thought that uh people would be thinking uh less of Michael Jordan. Maybe the en- younger generation, but for us who beloved him already, I mean, his legend is only going to grow from this. I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, I I think so. I, I I've heard rumors that it gets a little bit worse for Michael as he comes a little bit more belligerent throughout the throughout this, uh, you know, episodes 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So I'll be, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, you know. But uh, I feel I, I completely agree with you. Like I, I posed this question on Twitter the other day. Like what player do you feel – like what central figure do you feel better about? And I had Pippen, Jordan, Phil Jackson, and Krauss. I couldn't believe Krauss even got 7%. But he managed to get seven percent. I think it was. I'll go back and look at it. And then it was Jordan by a landslide. He's just. I'm glad. I I you know what I also found is I think his infil- his interviews have been really insightful. I think he's done a great job answering questions. I was kind of shocked to see him, uh, in this light. You know, because I always thought he was really measured, not really, not necessarily yeah. super honest or super. Uh, what's the word i'm trying to look for super insightful you know what i mean like i wasn't really getting understanding who he was a ton of times i think this has been just it's so much better than i expected like every time i watch it, i'm just smiling I, and i've watched it like four or five times each episode so this is great stuff. yeah man. i mean you, you know
0: you get that sense when he's easy um you know when you watch the footage of him going back in the early 90s when he's answering questions about you know scotty's trade demand as an example he would just placate the media with some very basic stuff not necessarily saying anything but just filling time and essentially just giving a a quote here and there on whatever it was but he was saying nothing whereas you compare that to the michael that we're getting now where he's just extremely candid showing sharing his side of the story and like i said just dropping a few f-bombs to uh just for added measure there just and just to emphasize his point i mean it is a bit of an insight that we haven't necessarily seen before and just only adds to the the legend that he was this psychotic, ruthless competitor, which we all love him for. But uh, yeah, it, it was fun to watch and it was great to see the Bulls obviously overcome the Pistons in this episode, which ultimately led to the the, the, the final scenes, I guess, where it showed or showcased the, the, the Bulls winning their first title. And I think what was very illuminating through that as well was we got to see, I mean, we just talked about how the Pistons behaved after losing, but you sort of contrast that to the way that Magic handled it how the lakers after losing to the to the bulls you know in, essentially losing the last four games there's there was, there was or there was an opportunity for magic and the lakers to be very salty about it given that their dynasty was ending at that point but the way that magic came across in this episode the way he handled that that loss that epic bad loss for the lakers in 91 with such humility i thought that was interesting as well
1: yeah magic was fantastic just a, f- a few things about this this doc that have, I think leads to um, incorrect assumptions. Uh, that's one of them. Like, you know, Scotty played great on Magic in game two, but Magic was fantastic in that series. He played fantastic in game three, four, and five. He had 20 assists in game five. He had like a 22 and 10, 22 and, or 23 and 11 in games uh, three and four. Uh, it, he was great in that series. So, It's not like he was just completely shut down by arguably the best perimeter defender in uh, in basketball. Um, You know, those are little things that I have issue with. I also have an issue with that, you know, Tony Kukoc has been barely mentioned in the first four hours or first four hours of this series. I think that's a travesty. You know, a couple statements uh, by Michael even yesterday, you know, leave me alone out there uh, when he was talking about Dennis Rodman. You know, MJ had Tony. He played very well that year. I think he deserved a little bit more respect than that but those are really minor complaints i'm i'm hopeful and likely i better be certain that they're going to give tony his share uh his 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 dues because he definitely came through when it mattered most in this in these series yeah i think we'll get that as we
0: move through clearly they're sort of going back through the uh through the archives here. It was a Rodman feature episode initially in in, in episode three to set up obviously his influence on that second Pete, but there was obviously that connection with him and the, the bad boys, Pistons, and how the Bulls obviously needed to overcome them to start their winning ways, and that was the lead-up through episode four into, you know, championships one. We may get championships two and three in in the next coming episodes. And there from there, I would imagine we go back into the second three-peat where we get more of Tony, more of Steve Kerr, more Dennis and those sorts of things. So, I think that'll be probably how it's all structured, I would imagine, or or how I'm guessing. But to your point as well, I mean, another thing I didn't really love about this documentary was how they were sort of shaping it up that Michael in all of a sudden in game five decided he was he was going to pass to his open teammates and find his open teammates like they made it seem like he wasn't doing throughout the the rest of the playoffs and when he was finding john paxton in the final in the final final quarter there for a, a few open jump shots for paxton and a down but i mean he he had 10 assists in game five there against the lakers in 91 but He had in those five games, he was essentially averaging double digits in assists during that series. He had 12 assists in the first game, 13 assists in game, in game two. He had 13 assists in game four. But for whatever reason, the way it was sort of positioned was he was finding his open teammates in game five and at that point decided to embrace the triangle and embrace finding his teammates. I thought that was kind of weird given that not only was he scoring a a bucket load of points against the Lakers in that final series, but he was also dishing and essentially almost coming close to averaging a triple double that series. Yeah,
1: that's a great point. Yeah, I think that was part of the, uh, if you read the Jordan rules, it's kind of like what that book starts out with about how you know, suddenly, hey, who's open, Michael? And Phil's telling him it's John. You know, then he gets him. John had a fantastic game, 520 points, and the Bulls win. But I agree with you, too. I think, you know, it's partly uh, for entertainment pers- purposes. That's why they set it up. But it's going to be really interesting yeah. to see where they go uh, in the next couple episodes. I just I want Tony to get his due. I really feel like he's been kind of sold, sold short a little bit so far.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that'll come. But did, did you notice how open John Paxson was on those jump shots and how revered he was because of, he, was able, he was able to knock down some easy mid-range jumpers when the Bulls were up 3-1? Did, did you notice that? I didn't that?
1: notice that. I did notice, though, that uh, you know, Michael seemed to like to pass to him. So and it, it, you ever, <laughs> Michael loved John Paxson. So uh, You can tell it's, it's eminently clear, and I can't wait to see what he does uh, in Game 6 against the Suns in 93. That'll be a real highlight for you. And I love every time something like this happens, I tweet out Paxson, rep- re- reputation restored. Not at
0: all. <laughs> Not even close. Not I mean it's people like you. I was reading this morning on Twitter for whatever reason. I woke up uh strolling through scrolling through Twitter and I was reading some nonsense about how people were calling John Paxson clutch because of his performance in game five and the 91 playoffs. I'm like, are you kidding me? The man was as open as he possibly can be. Magic Johnson wasn't even interested in guarding John Paxson and he was hitting the most basic of jump shots anyone. Anyone, so even some hacks down at the YMCA you could wow, hit. Come on. But then, what uh, we- they're banging on about the clutch genes that John Paxson has, and then there's people like you, Jumpy, on Twitter talking about. Uh, Paxson's reputation being restored and all this nonsense. I'm, I'm I'm prepared to give him bloody 1993 and the shot that he had, had in 1993 but anyone banging on about his performance about in game 5 of the 91 playoffs where he was just draining these most open of jump shots you could possibly imagine when the Bulls all but had uh, every possibility of winning the championship being up 3-1 at that point. I mean, I don't want to hear any of that for 91. Well, I think
1: that's kind of unfair, Mark. I mean, if you go back to 6 07 and uh, uh, when the, you know Ben Gordon was getting double teamed and, and the great Kirk Heinrich had the opportunity <laughs> to hit open Jays, he would brick them at a continual pace. And it was very disappointing for me to watch that. I know it's something you might have forgotten, but you know sometimes the moment can get too big for even players like the great Kirk Heinrich.
0: You put Kirk Heinrich in John <laughs> Paxson's position in 1991, and Kirk Heinrich is the most revered no. Chicago bull of all time. He already is one of the most... He's the top three Chicago bull already
1: in terms of games played. I think of, it was possible if Kirk was on that 91 <laughs> team, the Lakers win in seven. I hate to say it. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> well, put Ryan Archidiakono there instead of John Paxson. You're getting a sweep in that case, so... Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, John Paxson, the biggest grifter in Chicago Bulls history. But uh, <laughs> it, that pretty much were my uh, my uh, thoughts on on episodes three and four. I I watched it back multiple times again. I, I don't know how people watch it initially and then get on a podcast and then uh, offer their thoughts straight away. I need to I need to go back and re rewatch these things because there's so much to digest. But do you have any other 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 points that you wanted to point out about Episodes 3 and 4, and um, what are you looking forward to in Episodes 5 and 6?
1: One of the quotes that really stuck out with me was from B.J. Armstrong, who I thought did a really good job. And one of his quotes was, more than any other player, Scotty benefited from playing with Michael Jordan, end quote. And I I don't think that was remotely hammered home enough in the first episode. I think it almost left people... Uh, with the impression that Michael calling Scotty, you know, being selfish, you know, it, it just was a real, you know, really promoting Scotty episode. Those first ones, and he deserves a lot. Don't get me wrong; he's one of the greatest players of all time. But I do disagree with the thought that Scottie Pippen was ever one of the top five players in the NBA during any of those years. In fact, he didn't even make the All Star team in 1991. He was not the no, best player no. on the team uh, in the league at all in '94. Um, Keem was a better basketball player. He was probably the best player in the league during those two years. And I don't think that can be argued. You know, like, I think there's been a little bit of rewriting of history how good Scotty was. He absolutely was an incredible player. Don't get me wrong, he's a top 10 player, especially at those times. But he wasn't held in the Charles Barkley, uh, um, you know, that that tier at that point. I think that's not a, not a true statement or anywhere near accurate. Maybe in 93, 94, he probably finished and he did get votes for MVP. I don't recall off the top of my head who won it. It was probably David Robinson or uh, Akeem Olajuwon, but he wasn't at that height. He was never the best player outside of Michael Jordan.
0: He he was definitely a top five player in 93, 94 in that period, I thought. And if not top five and very much top 10, he was clearly an MVP candidate at that point, whether he was a top 10 player when when uh, in the early nineties, maybe not. I I that's up for debate. But um for some reason I've got a feeling that for whatever reason, you're look, in, in being your mate for the last how many years, you um happen to be one of the most biased people I know. And I'm just I'm getting the sense that Pippin's antics in ninety four or whatever it was against the Knicks where he decided to sit out and Decided to sort of sit at those 1.8 seconds at that, that, and as well as maybe these trade rumors and the things that we're learning through the last dance, that all of that has maybe swayed your opinion of who Scotty Pippen was or how good he was, and maybe your. You're on a bit of a media tour here at the moment, in terms of trying to uh, maybe not diminish who Scottie Pippen is, but maybe just trying to limit the greatness of Scottie Pippen. Now, that's the way I'm interpreting it, at least, because you have gone out of your way to sort of try to discredit Scottie on a on a couple of a couple of
1: items here. Well, look at <laughs> I'm not trying to discredit him. I, I I feel though I'm almost forced into it because there's been far too much. Michael was in, didn't do anything without Scotty, and that's just not remotely true. I, I think there was a massive chasm between Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, uh, and that's not that's not underscoring that's not to me like criticizing Pippen. It's just that it's not even close. Like Michael was the. But is anyone saying it's close? I, I think there's a lot of effort to to say you know like he was the he was the ultimate teammate, I, and in my opinion, Michael, like what BJ said, I think he really made Scotty or helped to make Scotty. I think he took him by the collar and said, you're coming with me, and it took a while for Scotty to really believe it. And don't get me wrong, he absolutely achieved greatness without Michael. But I don't think he was in 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 the that rare era that Michael was in. I think there were players at that period. So looking at the 93-94 NBA uh, Player of the Year awards, most valuable player awards. Hakeem Lajwan won it that year at the age of 31. He had 66 first place votes. Number two was David Robinson with 24 first place votes for the Spurs. And number three was Scottie Pippen with seven. Shaq had three. Patrick Ewing had one. So quite a bit of disparity there. Um, wind chairs, uh Pippen was the lowest out of the top five. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go on, a, on an effort to diminish him for that season. He was great, but um, there's a reason I always say that, that Phil asked Tony to shoot the ball at 1.8 left. I'll just end it on that. I know I'm losing. Yeah, fans yeah, yeah. You're not going to
0: convince me otherwise. There, there's, there's, Scotty has clearly done something to irk you in the past. And I dare say it was that, that incident where he decided to sit out and that maybe changed your perceptions of who he was. And um, I'm on to you, Fred, is all I'm saying. But, I, I, there's uh, no doubt that my. I don't think anyone is painting the picture that uh, Scotty is of a similar ilk to Michael Jordan so you don't need to combat that position because I don't think it's one that's uh that many actual same people are actually positioning
1: okay that's a fair enough statement uh <laughs> <laughs> this has been always entertaining as usual uh <laughs> always entertaining.
0: Always entertaining. We we may as well drop it there, Fred. We'll leave it there. Um we'll come back next week because uh we were in initially doing it every couple of weeks here during this whole COVID nineteen nonsense. But um uh, given that the last dance has been going on, we've moved back to a weekly schedule. So we'll be back next week. But um I appreciate you coming on this episode, Frederick, as you have been doing for the last few months as my co host going forward, the Scotty to my Michael Jordan. Clearly, as you sort of, sort of suggested, Scotty is definitely not on the same level as Michael Jordan and I. I would concur for obvious reasons, and hence why I think that comparison is apt in this scenario. But I do appreciate you coming along for the ride, and I do appreciate myself lifting you as a podcaster during this period. Well, I would
1: counter with a big thank you to the uh, sports psychologist over at NBC Sports Chicago <laughs> for providing us with that personality <laughs> test, which showed I am Michael Jordan and Mark is Jerry Krause. Hey, he was a good GM, Mark. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he did good, some good stuff. He did some good stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> good stuff. Oh, my God.
0: That's that's a great place to live. That's a great place to end it. Uh, Bulls fans, if you've been tuning into this one, hopefully you've enjoyed it. You can follow Fred for all his wisdom and his takes on Twitter, at CB Fred. You can listen to him on his own podcast as well, Chicago Bullseye. If you can't get enough of Fred, you can follow him over there too. Follow me on Twitter while you're doing it, at MK Hoops. Follow the show on Twitter too, at Bulls HQ Pod on Twitter. That is just about all for this episode of Bulls HQ. Right? We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you're staying safe out there. We'll catch you all again next week. Speak soon, Bulls fans.